House Armed Services Committees at last voted out their bills for 2024 last week. The Senate Armed Services Committee released a statement of intent. For one view of how things are actually shaping up, we turn to the president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, David Berteau. I guess it you could say it's some progress that the committees, at least on the House side, voted out a bill, but that doesn't really say much about the chances writ large. You're right, Tom, and it's great to have bills reported out of committee. On the House side, we actually get to read the bill, and it will come to the floor uh, after they return from their Fourth of July recess. So a couple of weeks from now, we'll see that bill on the floor, and there'll be quite a few other amendments. The Senate bill is not yet released, and this is not uncommon. What we frequently have seen in recent years is The Senate Armed Services Committee will mark up its bill. They won't release it, so we don't actually know what's in it. And it may or may not come to the floor. In fact, the last couple of years, what we've seen is the negotiations between the House and Senate have gone directly from a House-passed bill and a Senate marked up but not brought to the floor bill. And ultimately, we get what looks like a conference report without ever having gone through the actual full conference process. That may be what happens again this year. But let's focus a little bit maybe on what we do know, which is the House bill to begin with. Let's start with the top line, but then that devolves quickly into questions about individual armed services and everything else. Right. And the the top line appears to be the one thing on which there is firm and consistent agreement. The Fiscal Responsibility Act of 2023, that was the debt limit deal that the president signed just a month ago, agreed that the defense funding would be at the level the president requested, $886 billion uh, divided up mostly DOD, a little bit to Energy Department and a few billion to other agencies. Both the House and Senate have stuck to that number. In the House's case, they've said no supplementals for Ukraine or elsewhere. In the Senate's case, their press release made it clear they do believe additional money is needed. So there's agreement on the number, but not agreement on what the final number would be. The starting point number is there. Here's the thing, though. That president's budget request, did it address inflation or not? You know, both committees have said it doesn't cover inflation. And yet, It assumes 2.4% inflation, but it has a 3.3% increase. So from the numbers point of view, it covers inflation. By the way, the fiscal year starts in barely three months. Do you think we're going to be at 2.4% inflation come October 1st? Well, I guess it depends on what it is you're buying. (laughs) Some things are Uh, flat price, but some things they're buying are going up. Some things they're buying are going up. The biggest thing that's going up, though, is embedded in that, and both the House and Senate went along with this, is a pay raise of not 2.4% to cover inflation, but 5.2% for both military and civilian personnel, and both the House and Senate have approved that. By the way, there's no pay raise in there for contractors, even though obviously they suffer from the same uh, inflation pressures as the government employees do. Right. So the squeeze has to pop out somewhere, and therefore Uh, that would be in the procurement accounts. Right. So for DOD to absorb a 5.2% pay raise, and that's, you know, comes out to 35 to 40% of the entire DOD budget is going to pay in benefits for uh, military and civilian personnel. So if you have, if inflation is above that 2.4%, you're adding in that 5.2% pay raise. I'm sorry to muck around with the numbers here, but, and coupled with that means there's too little money elsewhere. So something has to give. History says, by the way, what will yield here is contracts and the dollars that go to contractors and and ultimately what you get those dollars, both in terms of services and in terms of goods. And there's other inflationary elements outside of the pay raise itself, and that is health care costs. 
continue to rise, and that's a huge bite out of the total defense budget. So yeah, it all mitigates in favor of contracts being the squeeze. And contracts have costs depending on raw materials and inflationary effects that are still in the economy. And now you're on the services side, which is not so much commodities and metals and energy, but yet people costs and, and the medical costs and so on that contractors incur. Two elements of that. One, of course, is the boundary between products and services is a lot fuzzier now than it was when you and I got into this business. Um, you know, there's an awful lot of things that both the Defense Department and other agencies in the federal government are buying now as services that they used to buy as products, right? Um, uh, legacy IT systems may have at one point you had to own the server farm yourself. Uh, now you know, the data is in the cloud. You don't actually own the server or the cloud for that matter. All you pay for is access to it. Similarly with uh, Space Launch, for instance, where you know uh, a lot of the satellites going up now are not owned by DOD. So that boundary is a lot fuzzier. But I think you touched on the workforce issue. And this is really where I think the impact and whether you call it from inflation or whether it's just the fact that we still have 11 million vacant jobs and only 6 million people looking for work, costs of workers have gone up over and over again. That's not addressed in either bill. In fact, it might be made a little bit harder in the two bills because of all the focus on the political aspects of diversity and equity and inclusion, which does have workforce impacts. You bet. We're speaking with David Berteau. He's president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. And I want to switch gears for a minute here and ask you about a rule from DHS on controlled unclassified information. This rulemaking goes back quite a while, doesn't it? And now they seem to be reviving it. It does, Tom. The, of course, controlled unclassified information and maintaining security of that information is probably more important than ever. The situations covered by the rule uh, have increased in importance. The need for protection of such information is more important than when the proposed rule was issued, which is back. It was you know, drafted at the end of the Obama administration, so it's really quite a while back. But also the technology, the awareness, the available processes for uh, both uh, uh, identifying threats and, and mitigating those threats have changed dramatically. And, and so we actually at PSC uh, submitted comments on the proposed rule back in 2017. We were a bit surprised to learn earlier this month that, that, that the final rule would be being issued. Um, and in fact, it did come out on the, on the 21st of uh, June last week. Our quick read of it reveals an, a number of, of problems. I'll be happy to go into a couple of them. Yeah, what are they? First of all, there's other ongoing work which will impact both the nature of the rule and the world in which it operates. Most importantly in that, in fact, you've talked about it on this show and you've had, uh, you've had guests in to explain it, is uh, Revision 3 of NIST Standard 800-171, uh, which is out uh, for comment right now, will dramatically uh, expand uh, the coverage of 800-171, get it closer in what contractors need to do to what federal agencies mm-hmm. need to do on their own systems, which is a different NIST standard. And comments are due on that on July 14th. I was going to say those so are not, not quite like due yet. Right. Off. Right. No, no, we're, we're right around the corner from that. So, you know, what was the hurry to get this rule after a six and a half year wait uh, to get this rule out when we know the universe in which it operates is about to change? Uh, the second thing is the rule punts a lot of issues to a FAR rule, uh, the timing and content of which are unknown to us uh, at this time. We haven't seen that proposed FAR rule, so it's really hard to tell. So, And then finally, the rule, as we track back against our comments made, again, six years ago, the rule 
failed to accommodate most of the industry comments, both from PSC and from other trade groups that, uh, that submitted comments along the way there, without a good explanation in many cases as to why uh, that was done. We've reached out to, uh, uh, to DHS and asked for a, a discussion on this. They may well have good reasons for having done what they did when they did it, but I think that uh, that, that dynamic still remains to be played out. Interesting. Yeah, we'll have to keep an eye on that one. Maybe they will delay it because of the NIST change, because we had an interview from Ron Ross himself on, on the changes to 171. They're not finalized yet, as you point out, because comments aren't even due until July. And then it takes NIST a while to inculcate the comments. And they do listen to comments into the final version of that revision of 171. They do. And I think, you know, if you go back to your interview with Ron and you heard him talk a lot about the changing nature of the threat and the changing capabilities that the government has to respond to those threats. Um, and that will that will require, I think, a, a dynamic situation to keep on going. Um, but there's one other aspect to it, Tom, that I think is beyond the DHS and even beyond the NIST standard. And that is the the inadequate recognition by the government of, of controlled unclassified information in an operational environment as well as in a protecting tech data for, for new systems, et cetera. You know, when you're operating around the world, whether you're the Defense Department or the Agency for International Development or any other federal agency that has operations in other countries, you're operating uh, for your support work uh, on, on the global commercial network, right? Um, and you're, you're buying, you know, food, fuel, supplies, telecommunications, uh, access to, to computers, et cetera, from companies and systems that will never be compliant with U.S. standards because they are in different countries and they have different standards of their own. Some of those guys are not necessarily friendly to us. You know, as soon as you start putting into that commercial system – what you're buying, when it's going to be delivered, where it's going to be delivered, to whom it's going to be delivered, what the quantity is, you are starting to run the risk of creating something that looks to me like potentially controlled unclassified information. It will give you operational data uh, that you need to have in order to perhaps do some nefarious things to us. But none of that is taken into account in these systems. And it's one of the problems that um, at PSC, uh, we've had trouble getting the government to recognize that that's a big issue. And it's not one that you can solve by changing U.S. regulation. And switching gears one more time, GSA's Oasis Plus solicitation finally came out. Does this take into account that ruling on task order pricing that came from one of the federal district courts that kind of upended the whole thing, the whole strategy for task order at the time of task order pricing? as opposed to pricing at the time of getting onto the contract. Right. Uh, Oasis Plus uh, did was released last week as a solicitation. Uh, I want to give kudos to GSA, uh, Tom, because they interacted with industry multiple times over many weeks or even months uh, in order to sort of get draft solicitations, get input on those draft solutions, get them, reti- get them refined and, and ultimately issued. So the process by which GSA developed this solicitation is, uh, is an example of the government operating at its best to get what it needs. It has to because we could be buying from this, uh, from this contract for 10 years, which is kind of what GSA estimates. But then it, it got upended a little bit back uh, in, in April when the Court of Federal Claims issued their ruling. It was on a different solicitation. It was on Polaris, a different contract. Um, but it, it upended the basis of, of particularly uh, unpriced uh, uh, bids for task order contracts so that the pricing would come in when the task orders came out rather than at the front end of the contract where it would be at best notional. Um, 
GSA right. uh, uh, did make some changes to accommodate that Polaris ruling. They think they'll still be able to move forward with that. And a particular note, and I think this is a real bellwether for uh, for the government, uh, a lot of future on-ramps. You've seen this in a lot of the GWAC contracts where uh, if you're not on at the beginning, you're not on. And the only way you can get on is to team with or buy somebody who's on the contract. So by keeping it open uh, and having it regularly open for those on-ramps, that could be a real plus going forward. Uh, GSA briefed us on this at last week's uh, PSC acquisition conference. Tiffany Hickson, who I think has been a guest on both your show and others, explained this in some detail. And we're really looking forward to uh, seeing what comes out of the solicitation process here. David Berto is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. You're welcome. And we look forward to solving all these problems down the road. You bet. <laughs> we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty. 
to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that, and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet 
Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.